1: I never really wanted to be a writer, and I was very much set on a, a career in military medicine. It was only when I responded to an ad in the British Medical Journal, a TV show in development was looking for medical advisors, that I kind of got switched on to the idea of, of making some kind of contribution. Welcome
2: to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And
0: I'm your other host, June Thomas.
2: And that voice heard at the top of the episode belongs to Jed Mercurio. June, you spoke to Jed Mercurio. Who is he and why did you seek him out for the show?
0: So Jed Mercurio, which is such a great name. I'm glad we get to say it a whole bunch of times.
2: Jed Mercurio.
0: Jed Mercurio. He is a British TV writer. Um, He made Bodyguard, which was well-received on Netflix a couple of years ago, but I especially love his show Line of Duty, which by my lights is one of the best cop shows of the last decade or a little bit more. Um, There are now six seasons, though only five have aired in the US at this point, which is causing some challenges for those of us who have text chains with British people because all they want to talk about is line of duty and I have to la 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 la. But anyway, I wanted to talk to him because he recently executive produced a show for the first time. That show was Bloodlands, which aired on the BBC in the UK and is now available on Acorn TV here in the States. And executive producer is one of those jobs that I'm always really curious about. So I wanted to learn more about what exactly he did on that project.
2: So for people like me, ignoramuses who have seen neither Bloodlands or Line of Duty, what should we know about them?
0: Well, the first thing to know is that they're police procedurals, which is a genre that I am very fond of. Um, Bloodlands is set in Northern Ireland, and the case that the first season follows is one that digs into the way that the Troubles, the sectarian conflict between Catholics and Protestants, which was officially settled at the end of the 1990s, keeps resurfacing. And, you know, there are riots happening in Belfast right now. So, obviously, that is a real issue in the real world. Um, Line of Duty, which I really, really recommend to anyone who hasn't seen, who has even the vaguest interest in cop shows, um, it's set in a police anti-corruption unit, what a U.S. cop show would call internal affairs. Mm -hmm. And I will just note... two of the basic ingredients that make it great. It is very twisty with huge but totally believable surprises being sprung on a regular basis. And a lot of the action takes place in very realistic seeming police interviews. Now, that sounds like, and it could be very dull, but Mercurio is absolutely fantastic at building tension into those conversations. And he's clearly interested in what the Brits call bank coppers, So there's very little of the valorization of cops that we often see in U.S. police procedurals.
2: Great. And after your discussion with Jed, we've got a voicemail from friend of the program, Roxanne Gay, with a bit of creative advice for our listeners. And also, I do believe if you're a Slate Plus Couture, you get a little (laughs) something extra with your episode this week, right?
0: You sure do, Yes. Members will hear Jed Mercurio's thoughts about why, although lots of top British actors work in the US, very few TV writers, including the big stars, cross the Atlantic to work on US TV shows.
2: Ah, well, I mean, if you can resist the appeal of that, I suppose you can resist the appeal of anything, like ice cream sundaes, or the delightful music of the Bee Gees, or joining Slate Plus. But if your soul is not dead, and if you like nice things, why not subscribe to Slate Plus? You'll get exclusive members-only content, zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and you'll be supporting the work we do right here on working it's only one dollar for the first month to sign up go to slate.com slash working plus all right that's enough pitching out of me let's listen to june's conversation with jed mercurio
0: Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So who are you and what do you do?
1: I'm Jed Mercurio and I'm a television writer.
0: So I would say that you are mostly known, especially over here for two shows that you created and wrote, uh, Line of Duty and Bodyguard. But... We're going to begin today by talking about a show that you executive produced, Bloodlands. Um, Could you describe that show for anyone who hasn't seen it yet?
1: Yeah, Bloodlands is the uh, first production uh, that I've exec produced through my production company, HTM Television. It's a show created by Chris Brandon and it's set in Northern Ireland in the present day and it follows a cold case investigation which is triggered by a, a crime in the present. And as a lot of people know, the particular kind of cultural and political legacy in Northern Ireland is informed by the Troubles, uh, mm. which was a a kind of sectarian conflict that took place in the recent past. And uh, peace was restored at the end of the 90s. And it's now a very prosperous area. But one of the things that makes it a great setting for bloodlands is the fact that there there are still enormous difficulties that arise from from that past conflict.
0: I do want to ask you about your the way that you love to kind of resurface the past in in your work. Um, but I'm curious about the role of executive producer. It's one of those titles or roles that can mean different things in different shows and People hear that role. They don't always have a clear vision of what it means. Could you say what kind of work your being executive producer on Bloodlands involved?
1: Initially, I worked with the writer, Chris. Mm. I read his script, which um, was being sent out to various production companies, and I I really liked what he'd done. I thought it was um, a great way into... An area of drama that isn't examined that much, mm-hmm. which is that the, the legacy of recent social conflict. Yeah, uh, great characters, really great hooks in the work, and so it was really about finding a way to bring that to the screen. So I worked mm-hmm. pretty closely with Chris, and and then with with another executive producer, Mark Redhead. And we got the script into really good shape and then we were able to attach uh, James Nesbitt Mm. to play Mm. the lead. And then we had the package that we were able to take to the broadcaster, the BBC. Mm. So as an executive producer, I I was just doing my best to facilitate Chris's vision for the show that that he wanted to write.
0: I know it's not a role that exactly exists in Britain, but you weren't the showrunner of the show. It was a facilitation mostly.
1: There wasn't really a showrunner on Bloodlands because Chris is a brand-new writer. There was a director who directed all the episodes, uh, a producer and executive producers who were all involved in the series. So I served as an executive producer throughout the the production period and post-production. So I I was part of the editorial team. So during the shoot, it's looking at, at... assemblies and cuts and and deciding Mm -hmm. whether we've got the right material or enough of the right material then when we're into the post-production period just being very involved in the editorial process of deciding the final cut Mm
2: -hmm. you know
1: the process with tv is that the post-production period isn't very long we have we have to get all the episodes into shape and, and approved by the network so it's a team process
0: I know that for Line of Duty, which is set in on the mainland in, in England, Northern Ireland is somehow like sponsoring or something. Is that, was it the same with, with Bloodlands? And can you kind of sort me out of, of what the relationship is exactly?
1: Yeah, so Bloodlands was shot in Northern Ireland and is set there. Mm-hmm. Line of Duty from season two onwards has been shot in Northern Ireland oh. uh, in Belfast. Oh. Uh, but it is set in an anonymous English (laughs) city so we have to disguise that it's Belfast whereas in in Bloodlands because it's very much part Mm. of the the atmosphere and the the location of the piece we were kind of showcasing the the Northern Irish location so we had some set in in Belfast which is the largest city but the majority was set in and around uh, Strangford Lock which is a an, an inland lake that mm. is quite eerie yeah. quite rugged yeah. and that was a, a big part of creating the atmosphere of the series
0: yeah it's, it's a beautiful setting but also very eerie that that um ferry ride over uh you know you you do have that feeling of like we're we're moving from the normal world maybe into the past um it's, it it is a very it's nice that you're able to to kind of make that journey and have it be a very kind of part of the the way that the show looks as well
1: yeah in fact i said that i described strangford lock as being an inland lake and i i misspoke mm. it's actually it looks like it's an inland lake but it it's actually um continuous with the sea ah. it's kind of uh, it, it's almost completely bounded by land but there's an inlet the sea, oh. which um, contributes to the currents and the, um, the the overall ruggedness of the location.
0: When you talked about what attracted you to the project, you talked about Northern Ireland and the Troubles and the history and that feeling of the past resurfacing. Let's listen to a clip from Bloodlands where those elements are on display. In the clip two police officers are talking about an unsolved case from the past.
2: In the early part of 1998, in the months leading up to the peace agreement, a handful of us were made aware of a possible assassin who, it seemed, had access to police intelligence. He was never identified, but the suspicion was that it could only have been an inside man
0: that concept of the past resurfacing seems like a common theme in your work. So, for example, in Line of Duty, it's often the case that characters from previous episodes or even previous seasons come back. Old storylines are revived. Is that just a recurring interest of yours as a writer?
1: Well, I think they're they're distinct Mm. in these two examples. Mm. In Bloodlands, it's very much part of the DNA of the, the pitch that It's set in Northern Ireland, it's set around the story of a protagonist who's a a police officer who is a serving detective in the present day Mm -hmm. but whose career stretches back into the past when the role of policing was was somewhat different because of the the social conflict that was going on um, within the communities. In Line of Duty, we've kind of told the story in the present. It's just that with each season we inherit the legacy of what's gone before. So we very rarely in Line of Duty delve into a past that predates season one.
0: But it still feels like it's unusual and wonderful to have past seasons returning because like that's what happens in life. Um, People from your past resurface and it very rarely happens in television. I think for logistical reasons, um, people don't want to, presume that they can get actors back when you're doing something like that which comes first the storyline or or the availability of the actor
1: it's something that we have to explore with with each season Mm -hmm. so we we don't plan ahead to the extent that we can book an actor to be in the following season or the season after so it's only when we're in the process of constructing the the season that we're working on that we might then start that conversation so we would explore whether a particular actor is available uh, uh, to serve a certain storyline and if we're lucky enough that they are then we can go ahead and include that storyline if it turns out that they're not then we have to explore alternatives
0: as i mentioned earlier uh, when we're recording this line of duty the current season is airing in the uk um it's not quite here yet although i'm sure it will be soon um it's the water cooler show right now. You know, it's, it's the show that's getting the episodic recaps in the newspapers, post-air podcasts. Actually, before I go on, I'm curious what you think about all those recaps and post-air podcasts. Like, how do you feel about that obsessive attention to your work? Has it changed the way you write at all?
1: No, it hasn't made any difference at all. I mean, I, I don't follow those things. Uh. I mean I'm I'm thrilled that they're there. Yeah. Um and uh, I know people do take part in them and, <laughs> and and listen to them and I think that it really adds to the enjoyment of the dedicated fans. Yeah. And you know, over the years of my career I've I've always wanted to write dramas that People would have to pay real attention to, yeah. and that that by remembering events from previous episodes or um, spotting connections uh-huh. early, and and so on, it, it enhanced the viewer experience. Uh, what's happened is that the the technology has changed. So now, with the advent of streaming platforms mm-hmm. and catch up technology, mm-hmm. people can go back and rewatch, mm-hmm. and and they can. Um, catch up on an episode they may have missed so they don't miss out on the connections within the story these are all things that that have only been around for a a decade or so Um, if you go back into the more distant past in television then shows really struggled to um, convince networks that having very complex connected storylines where the the viewers had to watch every single minute of every single episode, would succeed. Of course, some of them did, um, but that didn't mean that networks were averse to the risk of that kind of storytelling.
0: One of the things that really, you know, you've talked about the, the twists, the spotting the connections. You do twisty really well. I mean, there are definitely twists and surprises in Bloodland. You know, Line of Duty constantly has them so I'm curious how you kind of manage that because the shows that you've made are also often really about bureaucracy and process. Um, Line of Duty is about investigations in a very detailed way as was uh, Bloodlands. Um, are twistiness and accurate representation of bureaucracy things that you're thinking about when you sit down to either create a new show or to write a new season of one of your existing shows?
1: Well, I think any writer, when they're creating the world of the show, has to look at whether they're attempting to draw on the real world or they're deciding on a more escapist route. Yeah. You know, generally, I've looked at real world correlates of the kinds of stories and settings and characters that, that I've employed. And that's helped me make decisions about how a story might be told and and how much um, investment an audience is going to have in believing the outcomes, believing that the events they're watching could happen in in some kind of plausible version of our recognised reality. Mm. That doesn't mean that shows that are entirely escapist, which reject all of that, don't don't work yeah. of course they do yeah. i mean the the classic example of, of it in the genre that line of duty and bloodlands is set is the the idea of the amateur sleuth uh, amateur sleuths don't exist in the real world <laughs> uh, you wouldn't know it from watching tv right. and it doesn't seem to matter <laughs> right. on tv right. that, that anybody seems to be able to to a, investigate a crime um if they're minded to whereas you know, those of us who are familiar with the real world know that that is a rare and and at times unlikely event.
2: We'll be back with more of June's conversation with Jed Mercurio after this.
1: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg
0: in williamsburg virginia there's never too much of a good thing whether you're a foodie a golfer a history buff a shopaholic an outdoor enthusiast or a thrill seeker you'll find what you came for here and more so ask yourself what is it you want discover williamsburg and plan your trip at visit williamsburg.com
2: hey listeners couple things real quick first if you're enjoying this podcast great please take a moment to subscribe to our feed wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss a second of working and if you happen to be listening on overcast please recommend the episode by hitting the star icon also while i've got your attention if you have any questions about the creative process big or small whether it's how to figure out a big pivot at work or tackle an ambitious writing project or just find more time in your day to be creative we would love to help you can drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us an old fashioned phone call at 304 933 WORK. That's 304 933 9675. We really, really like phone calls. Okay, let's rejoin June's conversation with Jeb Mercurio.
0: Your police procedurals are very heavy on procedure. Um, There's a lot about the requirements for police interviews, you know, how many levels above in rank the person who's questioning needs to be, uh, you know, the specifics of the way the things, the the exhibits are presented. Let's actually listen to a clip of Line of Duty so listeners can hear what I'm talking about. Here's a police interview from the show.
1: Questions will be put to you by Superintendent Hastings. Is it your right to be questioned by an officer at least one rank senior? I will furnish factual information only, starting with image 47 from a CCTV. I think camera of Captain
0: those United restrictions, United restrictions as being like creative restrictions, which can be quite helpful uh, when it comes to writing. You know, it's not quite a blank page, it's, you know, like restricted by what real life cops have to do. Is that how you think of, of those real life restrictions that you? present in your shows?
1: I think that the way they work is that they give the show a distinctive identity. So if you're going to go down that road of trying to be as true to life as possible, then I think you can't do it with half measures because I think most shows do it with half measures. They they do enough that it feels like it's set in a, in a, a realistic depiction of, law enforcement but they're prepared for whatever reasons and and i think the reasons are usually justified to apply artistic license to cut corners to um to platform stories in in ways that maybe wouldn't happen in the real world and obviously we do that to an extent in in line of duty Mm -hmm. and and in bloodlands but i think our aim is to do it as little as possible
0: I mean, again, I've, not, I've never seen an actual police interview. So I, I, maybe I'm falling for your, for your fiction, you know, that ah, that's how, exactly how they do it. Um, is it actually accurate? And if it is, you know, how do you, how do you find out how cops actually do their interviews?
1: Well, it's accurate up to a point. <laughs> um, and, and I think that applies to, to drama in general, that drama isn't reality and we view the two things differently, and they're certainly constructed very differently. So with, with Line of Duty, we've not sought to emulate what a real police interview is that we've watched. We've sought to apply the procedures that we know real police officers have to, to follow. And from those first principles, we've created a way that we approach police interviews. Um, so it's just really things like the the way in which evidence is itemized the the way in which if a question is being put to a suspect then the basis of that question has to has to stand up legally and so by doing that and doing it as as rigorously as possible within what is an internally consistent approach then we create the very similitude of it, of the interview yeah. And the way that we do it is is distinctive and contributes to the identity of the show. I think if you were to put one of our interviews against a real police interview, you would see significant differences. Mm. But then I think if you put an interview from a regular cop show against a police interview, you'd probably see even greater differences.
0: I know that you're a fully qualified doctor, uh, or so I believe. Was it a tough decision to switch from practicing medicine to becoming a screenwriter?
1: Well, I was very fortunate that I, I never really had to make the decision. Oh. Um, I was working as a, as a resident in internal medicine when um, my first show was on the air. And then it, it got ordered for a second season. So I ended up taking a sabbatical to work on the second season. And then I just kept extending that sabbatical. (laughs) And um, so I never really felt that I was turning my back on medicine. Uh I always thought that there was an opportunity to go back if TV didn't work out. Uh And it's just as the years went by and I got more involved in TV and farther away from medicine that it became clear that I was on a different career path.
0: Not to be too pressed, but physicians make much less in the UK. Um, It's hard for me to imagine many American doctors making that move, although I know there are some like Neil Bear who... Um, is is also a physician but are there things from your medical training that you use in your writing practice
1: well a number of the shows that i've worked on have been set in the medical world mm-hmm. so that was a big part of certainly my early career um the the, the first show i did was it was a little like scrubs mm-hmm. is probably the, the the best example <laughs> um it was a kind of comedy drama um built around the experiences of kind of interns and residents and then I did another show a, a few years later that was um a, a much darker and more complex piece it was an out and out drama set in um obstetrics and gynecology in a in a, a department that had multiple dysfunctions and it was kind of a you know an examination of how things can go wrong in the medical world uh-huh. But I guess the the, the universal factor is that I've got primary experience of seeing sort of very stressful life or death situations Mm. and have seen lots of people in those situations coping with them and responding to them in different ways. So that sort of gives me a template to write about that kind of scenario.
0: I'm curious about when the desire to kind of break into writing came. When you go through the onerous uh, training and it's difficult to get into medical school, you go through all that. I think you also served in in the Air Force. During all those um, years, were you thinking, this is great and all, but I just really want to be a writer? When did that seed get planted?
1: I never really wanted to be a writer uh, (laughs) until I got the opportunity. I... Uh, I was a fan of TV and film, and and uh, I, I certainly would have jumped at the opportunity. But I went to a very ordinary high school. Um, there was no real opportunity to do creative things. There was a lot of pressure to to do well in in high school and and give yourself the opportunity to get into a, a secure profession. And that was the path I took. I um, I was a very sciencey kid, and I ended up going to medical school. And while I was at medical school, I joined the Air Force. And I was very much set on a career in military medicine. And it was it was only when I responded to an ad in the British Medical Journal, where a TV show in development was looking for medical advisors, that I kind of got switched on to the idea of of making some kind of contribution and and I n- honestly never expected it to, to lead anywhere so I was incredibly fortunate that it did.
0: So w- when you did get that break as it were were there things that you did to kind of figure out how to be a good writer like were there books that you read were there I don't imagine there were online courses that you took but like how did you figure out how to be a good writer?
1: Well, initially, I was very fortunate to serve what you might describe as an apprenticeship with the producers on the show who, who were very experienced. And so they mentored me through a process of of the absolute basics from how you lay out a script to some fundamental guidance on, on how you structure your story. And then once I was delivering drafts, they were giving me great notes, which I was learning from. And it was only when... The, the first season aired and was a hit and there were more seasons to be written that I thought well I, I need to take this a little more seriously now and and that's the point where I kind of did the, the screenwriting workshops you know the weekend courses and and read you know books on on, on story structure and and story construction and so on mm.
0: what was that show that that first show that you worked on
1: it was called Cardiac Arrest, oh. and it aired in the UK uh, from 1994. So it, it came out a few months before ER. Uh-huh. And like I said, it probably the, the thing that it was closest to was Scrubs. Yeah. But I think Scrubs aired later as well.
0: So when you did make that move from uh, medicine to writing, did what, did you feel like you were using different parts of your brain? Did it feel like you were stretching different muscles what did it feel like to make that switch?
1: Oh, definitely it felt like I was getting into a, a new area and I'd always done very technical things. So to do something that was quite creative was a real challenge but also something that I really enjoyed. And as the process went on and, and as I learned more about it, it was something that I became more confident with. But initially, I, you know, I... I have to be honest I was very naive about writing very naive about how TV worked so it was something that I was kind of doing as a hobby or as a sideline and with no real expectation that it, it would would change my career path.
0: Jed Mercurio thank you so much for spending this time with us appreciate it.
1: My pleasure thank you.
2: June, what a delightful (laughs) down-to-earth conversation the two of you had. This is the second time you've talked with a writer for UK television, and I am struck anew by how different they do it over there. Like, I did a double-take when he said that Bloodlands doesn't have a showrunner.
0: Yeah, I mean, Bloodlands has one writer for all the episodes, Chris Brandon, and also the same director directed all four episodes. And Jed Mercurio has written every episode of the six seasons of Line of Duty. You know, it's a different way of making TV. It's still very collaborative. It's not like they are one man bands. But Line of Duty is most definitely Jed Mercurio's show in the way that It's a Sin was Russell T. Davis's or Gentleman Jack is a Sally Wainwright show. Like all that is possible without their having a direct analog of the U.S. showrunner role.
2: Right. Totally. Because uh, I guess if you don't have a writer's room, what are you Mm. running if it's it's just you? You know, June, I loved that you asked Jed about recap and post-air podcasts because you hosted a wonderful one about the Americans and (laughs) you and I co-hosted a, if I do say so myself, pretty delightful one about (laughs) Game of Thrones and its final seasons. And, you know, he seemed like he's done the really healthy thing as a creator and now totally avoids them. But I do feel like more and more people people who work on long-running shows are taking the audience's reaction into account in a really overt way. Do you see that in your TV viewing? Are, Are fans becoming a more important or perhaps even too important part of the television creative process?
0: Yeah, they are. And I'm really conflicted about this. I think it's awesome that there are these fandoms that can unite and kick up a fuss when a show does something deeply uncool. Like, I'm thinking of the way that fans of a CW drama called The 100, rose up when that show built up this really strong relationship between two of the female leads and then very suddenly killed one of them in a way that followed the script of the classic lesbian baiting bury your gaze trope. And so that response and that protest really warmed my heart and I thought it was totally justified. At the same time, I also want creators to be in charge of their creations, like to be responsible for the successes and the delights, but also to have the freedom to fail to please. Like there's an amazing episode of Slate's Decodering podcast called The John Locke Conspiracy about how the Sherlock fandom got totally out of hand and effectively killed the show. I mean, that is fandom at its worst. I'd say that. Even though I have some sympathy for what those fans wanted, like it can get out of hands so easily.
2: Right. Uh, I was also fascinated to learn that he did not train as a TV writer. (laughs) He trained as a doctor. Now, maybe this is because writing is my second career, too. But it's worth saying that in any creative industry, no two people's paths are really the same and that there is nothing wrong. I want to underline (laughs) this. (laughs) There is nothing wrong with having a second career.
0: God, absolutely not. I've done now a couple of projects around second acts, which, you know, is when a person moves from one career to another. And it's often the case that the shift is driven by passion. Like I remember speaking with Nicole Auerbach, an attorney who became a rabbi, and Jerry Allen, a guy who started from the bottom, the very bottom of the national park system and eventually did become a park ranger. Uh, in his 60s, I think, after a multi-decade career at Delta Airlines. Like, they were just both so driven to, to kind of start over. And with Jed Mercurio, I got the impression that he would have been happy if he'd stayed in medicine. Like, it wasn't, I just must become a writer. But, you know, I was a fan of his TV shows. So I'm glad he did. Isaac, would you describe your career shift as being about getting a chance to live out a dream?
2: I mean, it's worked out that way, but no, not really. I mean, if I'm going to be completely honest, it was because I... So I was working as a director as kind of my primary occupation, and writer was a kind of secondary thing, and... Mm What really happened was my now wife and I wanted to get married and have a kid. And I realized that the career I was chasing as a director, like if I actually got the success I wanted, I'd be on the road like six months out of the year. And I just didn't want to. That's not how I wanted to raise a family. I just didn't want to do that. Um, And at the same time, my wife wanted to quit theater and get her MBA. And so uh, I started to explore what some alternatives would be that would be a more manageable, sustainable uh, life for us, and yeah. I started exploring the kind of thing that had been on the back burner—the writing thing—and I sort of switched which burners they were on, right? And so, writing became primary, and directing became secondary. But um, one of the things that that happened as a result of that, weirdly, was I got the biggest gigs I'd ever had as a director, right <laughs> when I made that decision, right when I was like, "I'm quitting and I'm going to graduate school." Um, uh, and also, I discovered like a real, a, a, a true love love of writing, and and you know, I'm, huh. I'm glad it's what I do every day. To be completely
0: wow, honest. interesting.
2: Uh, You've, of course, you know, had many different roles within, within Slate, and, and currently, you know, it's not all one job that mm. you've had this whole time, and, and currently your focus is much more on podcasts than it was, you know, five, ten years ago. Yeah. You know, w- w- What was that transition like for you? What was that second act like?
0: Well, you know, I think it's more that that is kind of a, a career path, you know, in journalism. Like in, in most, um, I don't know, in some fields the sort of more senior you get, the less you do the thing that got you into that profession. I mean, it happens in teaching uh, where you become an administrator. It happens in um, in journalism, which you probably start, you know, pretty much everybody starts as a writer, then you become an editor. And if you become more senior as an editor, you don't really do any editing. Um, <laughs> it, so it is that odd progression of doing something in a way that kind of stops you doing the thing that you love. But, you know, I'm... At Slate, we get to, um, you know, it's, it's not a very territorial place. So, you know, occasionally I'll write a TV review or something. You can kind of keep your hand in if there's something that you really want to write. Um, so it just feels like it's, it's part of the seasons of a career. Mm-hmm. Um, it just seems more of a natural progression kind of thing.
2: Interesting. You know, I have a friend who has this theory that that creative types fall into two categories, which are eels and squids, (laughs) Um, because eels at every stage of their maturity, they are radically different organisms like a baby eel and an adult eel are nothing alike basically they're like very very different creatures whereas squids just start as small squids and become ever larger and larger squids right so you sort of lead a bunch of different lives and you do a whole variety of things yeah. or you know from the age of 10 you know that you're going to be let's say a writer and then you just become more and more yourself a larger and larger squid as you go along and, and i yeah. like that both of those are valid ways of absolutely you know pursuing a creative life interesting i am also excited because friend of the program, Roxanne Gay, left us a voicemail with some writing advice, and I want to get your opinion on it. Let's take a listen.
1: Hello, my name is Roxanne Gay, and
2: I am a writer. I've written books like Bad Feminist and Hunger. In terms of a piece of general creative advice, you know, these days I'm really fond of talking about how first drafts aren't necessarily terrible. People love to talk about how terrible first drafts are, and sometimes they are. But sometimes there's some really interesting stuff
1: happening there. And I wish more writers would trust their initial instincts. So first drafts aren't necessarily terrible.
2: June, what do you make of Roxanne's advice?
0: Oh, I loved it. I found it bracing and, you know, a useful corrective to this popular narrative that first drafts are universally awful. I mean, I get why That is such a popular refrain. A lot of people, me included, you know, you need to hear it because first versions can be crap and you really shouldn't give up if you're hating what you're typing. But the first version of an idea can also be the best one. It's definitely possible to work a thing to death and drain the life all the way out of it. Um, What did you think?
2: Yeah. You know, there's that wonderful essay by Anne Lamott called Shitty First Drafts. And I think amongst writing teachers, that's where a lot of this idea comes from. But the whole point of that essay is generosity, right? It's like, don't torture yourself before you start writing the thing. Just write the thing and then you can make it better. Don't be anxious about it. Just do it. It's okay. You can always change it later. Like there's a real generosity behind that piece that yeah. I think has turned that, that can curdle and become, uh, well, the you're the first draft is just a garbage dump. And then all you're gonna do is you're gonna go through that garbage dump and you're gonna look for the like one or two little gems there and and then you're going to light the rest on fire and you're going to hate yourself. And, you know, so I I like that Roxanne is questioning that, you know, there are certainly, I mean, there are parts of the book, I'm doing the final passive edits with my editor on, on the method right now. And there are sentences in that book that come from the first draft, you know, because I got it right that time. And when you, and sometimes meddling for the sake of meddling is not helpful. Yeah. I think that if you can just find ways to be as generous and kind to yourself throughout while still being rigorous, you know, to me, that's the key. And sometimes that means recognizing when you're like, hey, good job, past version of me. Um, You know, there, there are those ideas there. And I absolutely agree with you that you can revise something to such a point that you've drained all the blood out of it and that whatever yeah. initial spark, initial impulse, initial problem or conflict question motivated you and made that piece of writing worth doing is gone. Yeah. And finding that balance between revising and strangling you know your own work is <laughs> yeah. one of the main learning experiences as you become a more mature artist, I think.
0: Yeah, I think having trust in your abilities Um, be generous but also have confidence everything that you produce the first time that you sit down and start typing is not junk and you should trust that
2: yeah you know, I also think there's a thing that we do. I don't know if you do this, June. I, I do this. So I'm just going to say me, not we. There's a thing that I do where it's like in my own head to like protect myself from heartbreak. I'm sort of like making fun of my own work. I'm like, well, who wrote this shit? Do you know what yeah, I mean? Like yeah, in my brain. Yeah. And um, it's a good note from Roxanne that like as fun as that can be. Sometimes you need to actually turn that off, Uh, like beating yourself up as a preemptive way of like protecting yourself from other people, not liking it or whatever is is do actually doing no one any favors.
0: Yeah. Let's not fetishize self-flagellation. We we do it enough already. Let's not celebrate it too.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, we hope you've enjoyed the show this week. If you have, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, then you'll never miss an episode. And yes, I am gonna give you the Slate Plus pitch one last time. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, but more importantly, you will be supporting the work we do right here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thanks
0: to Jed Mercurio for being our guest this week. Our amazing producer continues to be the great Cameron Drews, who has to listen to a lot of my takes in the line of duty. We'll be back next week with Roman's conversation with children's book author Stuart Gibbs. Until then, get back to work.